Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When people speak about the living God, sometimes it's easy to assume that God rejects people. Sometimes it's very easy to assume that that's how he looks at people in general, that he looks at people with this attitude of rejection. And I suppose it's easy to assume that because a lot of what people say does give us that impression. It really does. People say that God rejects you. He rejects people that you're just a bunch of rejects from his point of view, things like that. And it's normally because of some sin that you're committing. It's because of some sin that you have in your life that you're just not getting over, that you're not letting go of, that you like more than him. This is what people say. They say that because you are sinning, God rejects you. And since he rejects you, well, then you had better get in touch with that, and you had better do something about that. You had better change your ways. You had better change your attitude. You had better get the sin out of your life because obviously this is a very serious matter to consider that God rejects you in some way. Now, this can be used in the context of somebody who does not know God, but it can also be used in the context of somebody who does know God or who is saved, who believes in Jesus, who goes to church a lot, you know, people like that. It can be used for them as well. For the lost people, for people who do not acknowledge God, it's used in order to show people that they have a need for him to save them because he rejects them so much and they are not going to be able to get themselves figured out or straightened out and so they need him to save them. Otherwise, they are going to live in this complete rejection that he has for them, things like that. In addition to that, with saved people, people use the idea that God rejects you in order to motivate you, to drive you to be better, to be a better Christian, to be more involved in the things of the church, to volunteer more, to do things for God, stuff like that. This is used as a motivator for the lost and for the saved, and people are motivated by that. It works. It really does. I don't think it's a good idea, and I certainly don't want to encourage anybody to use that kind of motivator, but believe it or not, there are a lot of people who are motivated by believing that God rejects them and they want to be accepted by God. And so people use this in order to manipulate people, in order to get them to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. So the idea of God rejecting you, either because you are a sinner and you are lost and he's going to send you to hell, or he rejects you because you are saved and you're not living up to his expectations, there are a lot of reasons why people use this and why people promote this. But when you consider some things that God did say, you might make the assumption that he does reject people. Let's consider a good example, the subject of hell. If hell is the destination for a person who does not believe in the living God, he's not going to let them into heaven. He's not building a place for them in heaven. They're not going to have anywhere else to go. And so he's going to send them to the place that he created for the devil and his angels. There just isn't anywhere else for him to put them. So he's going to put them in there. 
which is often described as the lake of fire or a place of eternal punishment. Now, is that an expression of rejection? Does that mean that when a person dies and they go before God, that God is going to look at them and say, I just want you to know how grateful, how thankful I am to finally see you face to face so that I can look you in the eye and say, I just want you to know that I reject you. I just want you to know that. Is is that what he's going to do? Is that how he's going to express his feelings or his attitude towards somebody who totally rejected him and he's going to send them to hell? I honestly don't think so. I personally think that he's going to express disappointment, that he's going to be very sad, that he will experience a great deal of pain personally, that this is not something that he really wants to do, but it's something that has to be done. It is what has to be done because that is what he declared and that is the just decision to be made in this kind of a circumstance. But it is not a rejection of God towards people. It is nothing more than his acknowledgement of a person rejecting him. That's what this is. A person has rejected God and he is allowing them to reject him. Now, I personally have met a lot of people who don't think of it that way. They don't believe in God. They want nothing to do with him. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't want to know him. They don't want to know anything about what God has said or what he has done. They have no interest in his mercy, and they personally take the position that that's okay, that there's nothing wrong with that at all. They do not believe that they are against God in any way. They don't see themselves in that way. They don't believe that they're really rejecting God because, you know, for the most part, they don't really believe that he exists. And so how can they truly reject a God who they don't even believe exists? From their point of view, they don't really see it as rejection. But from God's point of view, he does see this as a rejection of him. I believe, I really believe, that God has provided enough evidence for anyone, for everyone, so that if they want to know the truth concerning his existence and concerning his participation, that if people really want to know the truth concerning his existence, he has provided more than enough evidence to convince anyone as far as he's concerned. As far as he is concerned, he has provided more than enough evidence to everyone who has ever lived, who has ever wrestled with this question. And so to his satisfaction, this question has been answered. And so from his point of view, regardless of whether people acknowledge his existence or not, from his point of view, they have rejected him. And for him to see them end up in hell because they rejected him, I believe will be a very painful experience. I really believe that, that this is not what he really wants. I believe that he wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to submit to who he is, because he is the one to submit to. He is the king. He is our Lord. That is the way things are. I sincerely believe that he wants people to know him in a personal way, not to see him as the authority who is trying to keep them under control, but to see him as their best friend or the one who could be their best friend, to see him in that way and to know him personally and for him to be able to relate to them in that way just as we are able to relate to him in a similar way. I sincerely believe that he really wants us to have a personal relationship with him, but because people are not willing to believe him, 
To him, that is a form of rejection. So when I think of the subject of hell, I don't think of it as an expression of God rejecting people. I personally think of it as a way of understanding that people have rejected God. So what about those who are not going to go to hell but are going to go to heaven? What do we do about those people who are constantly living in this belief that God rejects them? First of all, how does that happen? Well, it happens because they're told that. Because, of course, they're not able to get their sin under control. And so they are told that God rejects them until they do get it under control. He doesn't reject them in the sense that he's going to send them to hell. He'll still work on a place for them. It may not be the best quality of mansion, necessarily, not compared to other people who apparently have less sin in their lives than these people do. That's what people are believing and thinking and saying. I don't subscribe to that at all, but this is what people are thinking. And they believe that God rejects them because they're not as much of a Christian as they should be, or as much of a Christian as other people are that they're not as wonderful, they're not as holy, they're not as popular, whatever that may be. People believe in a relational way that God does reject them, and sometimes this is expressed in the context of punishment or discipline. The word discipline is a lot more popular than the word punishment, but it is effectively used in the same way by people. It is used in that way to show that God does reject people, but only to a limit. He doesn't reject them to the point where he won't let them into heaven, but he does reject them in a way, enough of a way, that it should be noticeable, that kind of thing. When God spoke about Esau and Jacob, and he said that he loved Jacob more than Esau, to the extent where he said that he loved Jacob more than Esau, to the point where it would be as if he hated Esau. It was a Hebrew idiomatic expression that I described in the messages that I did on Romans chapter 9. But when we look at that, we could say that he rejected Esau. Well, he didn't reject Esau. He just simply acknowledged that this is the attitude of Esau, that Esau didn't care about an inheritance. He saw that this was the character of Esau, that this is how Esau was, and he loves Esau. But he loved Jacob more because Jacob wanted an inheritance. He wanted to live on the basis of what he could receive from his father. And this kind of an attitude is what our God is looking for in us, to be a people who want to receive the inheritance that he, as our heavenly father, wants to give to us so that we can live our lives with what he has given. So he didn't reject Esau, and he certainly doesn't reject people today who don't live in the inheritance that they have in Christ Jesus. He doesn't reject them. He just simply recognizes that people have, in effect, rejected his inheritance. If they don't want to live in and make use of the inheritance that he has given to them, then that is a form of rejection that they have exercised towards God. So when people think about God rejecting people, I really believe that the real issue is that we as people tend to reject God. He does not reject us. We reject him, and he allows us to reject him. He provides us with the freedom and the liberty to reject him and to experience the consequences of rejecting him, which are not necessarily something that he does out of an act of vengeance or out of an act of despair or anything like that. They are just simply the true and just consequences that you would expect to experience in any circumstance like this. He is a person. He is not a philosophy. He is not some 
outer space being who isn't participating in our lives or who doesn't want to participate in our lives. He is a person, and he thinks, he understands, he believes, and he knows. And what he thinks, he understands, and what he believes, and what he knows does matter. What he thinks about things, what he thinks about people, and what he thinks about attitudes, and how he sees people through his eyes, and how he hears people through his ears, is important. It really is. It's very difficult for people to get in touch with this. I understand that, because people are so self-consumed. People are so consumed with themselves. All they care about is what they think, what they hear, what they know. And in a lot of ways, people have the luxury to be that way, because somebody else is probably going to support it. Somebody else is going to allow them to live that way. They're going to pay for their food. They're going to pay for their clothing. They're going to pay for their place to stay. People do support people, and people have the luxury of living that way because they don't have to interact with others. They don't have to have relationships, sound, healthy relationships with others where they are contributing to the lives of other people. They don't have to do that because there's somebody else who takes care of them. When people relate to God, sometimes they relate to him in a similar way. They don't have to think about what he thinks. They don't have to think about what he knows or how he cares. They don't have to think about what he cares about. They don't because they have what they need. They're either self-sufficient or somebody else makes up the difference in their lives. And they don't really need God. And so who cares what he thinks, right? This is the attitude of a lot of people. And this is a form of rejection towards God. That's what it is. Now, when it comes to Romans chapter 11, we have a question about God rejecting people. In Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's talking about Israel that there were a lot of people who did not believe in Jesus in Israel when he came. They did not follow him. They did not want to know him. They totally rejected Jesus. And in response, he is not going to provide them with a place in the kingdom of heaven. They reject him, then that's fine. They can reject him. But he is God. He is the possessor and the king of the kingdom of heaven. That's it. So when considering Israel, and you consider that very few people acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah, and the message of the gospel then went out into the rest of the world, and there were a lot of people in the rest of the world who believed in Jesus as their Messiah, to the point where in many ways the Israelites became jealous of the Gentiles because of their interest in and their zealousness towards the living God who they claimed, who the other nations claimed, was the God of Israel. And because of their enthusiasm, because of their comfort, because of their peace and rest in their hearts, supposedly there were a lot of Jews, a lot of Israelites, who were jealous. For example, in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, it says, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation, without understanding, will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. 
They were people who were not willing to accept the Messiah when he came. I want you to understand that the Israelites who rejected Jesus did just that. They rejected Jesus. And there were many Gentiles who accepted Jesus, but there were also many Gentiles who rejected Jesus. So the question in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, is did God reject Israel? Of course not. He didn't reject them. How about the Gentiles who did not believe in him? Does he reject them? No, he doesn't reject them either. It is they who rejected him, not him who rejected them. But because people are so self-consumed with themselves and they think that they are the greatest thing that has ever existed in the universe, in many ways, because of that, people make the assumption that he is the one who is doing the rejecting. After all, if we're so wonderful, why would he reject us? Didn't he create us to be in his image? Why would he reject us? Aren't we wonderful? Aren't we great? Look at all the good things we do. And look at all the things that we don't do. Now, of course, other people do those terrible things, but we don't do those. So we can compare ourselves with those other terrible, evil people. We're not like them. And so if God is not giving to us, if he's not gracious to us, if he's not finding ways to intervene in our lives and bless us, well, then he is rejecting us. This is what people are thinking. But this is not the case. It's the exact opposite. The problem is not with God. The problem is with the people. And they have rejected him. The people who did not embrace Jesus were the people who rejected God's Messiah. And the Gentiles, just as the Israelites, the Gentiles who did not embrace Jesus as the Messiah, they rejected the living God. And so God has not rejected his people In verse 2, this is Romans chapter 11, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, did he say, don't worry, I have only rejected all but 7,000 people. There are 7,000 people I didn't reject. Don't worry about those. The other people, yeah, absolutely. Don't worry, I'll reject them. I will destroy them. I will punish them. I will hurt them. I will do whatever it takes to show them that they are wrong and that I am right, that they are evil and that I am good. That is not what he says. He does not respond by saying, don't worry, I have not rejected everyone. He says, don't worry, there are some who have accepted me. There are some who have not rejected me. So again, in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know? And in many cases, people just don't because they don't bother studying the scriptures. But it says, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. And then in verse four, but what is the divine response to him? It is not a response of don't worry, I will reject them all. That's not how he responded. He said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, what was his choice? 
Was his choice was to reject some people and accept others? Absolutely not. His choice was to say, those who want to know me, those will be mine. He made the choice by saying, I will not reveal myself to those who don't want to know who I am. And those who do not want to know who I am will not have a place with me in the kingdom of heaven. They will not be mine. I will not reserve them for myself. They will not be my children. That was how he made the choice. He made the choice by discriminating between those who want to know him and those who don't. He made a choice, absolutely. And there are people who are gods because of his gracious choice. But his gracious choice was not to say, okay, you, you can be one of mine, and these other people, they can't be one of mine, but this one can and not that one. He doesn't do it that way. He says, this is the kind of person who I want. This is the kind of person who I'm going to choose. And in order to choose this kind of a person, I have to discriminate in some way. According to the gospel, he discriminates by saying, I am offering to people a free gift. And if people want the free gift, then they are mine. And those who don't, they are not. That is how he made his choice. He chose to offer people something for free. And people participate in this choice by choosing to accept the free gift of eternal life or reject the free gift of eternal life. It's very similar to the way that God created the animals and brought them to Adam. When God created the animals and he brought them to Adam, he said, Adam, look what I did. I created all of these animals and I'm going to bring them all to you. And I'm going to sit down here and rest for a minute while they're coming over here. And I'm going to listen very carefully and watch what you do and what they do. I'm going to pay attention and I want you to name these animals. You come up with a name. So also... When he offers the free gift, he says, you, you decide, you make the choice. He has done his work and he is resting from the work of salvation. Now you make the choice. He has brought this message to you just as he brought the animals to Adam. And now you make the choice with regards to whether you are going to accept him or reject him. If you're going to believe him or if you are going to believe that he's a liar or that he does not even exist at all. So I want you to understand that the rejection that people experience is a rejection that they express towards God, not a rejection that he expresses towards them. He loves us. He wants us. He is gracious to us. But he is God, and he has declared that those who want nothing of him won't have anything of him at all. And that means him for who he truly is, not him in the sense of whatever they want him to be, but him for who he truly is. So what did he really accomplish with Israel? What was his true accomplishment? His accomplishment with Israel was to bring humanity to the point of salvation. He used Israel to answer the question of do we live according to the knowledge of good and evil Or do we live according to the graciousness of God, according to the inheritance of God, according to what he gives us? How are we really going to live? And he answered this question through Israel, through the nation of Israel. He accomplished a solution to this question. And then through the Messiah, he provided a solution to this crisis, to this concern, to this issue. And he did it by forgiving the sins of humanity 
By forgiving the sins of humanity, he brought the law to an end, so that the question of do we live according to the knowledge of good and evil came to an end. It was answered. Of course not. But because of the bondage of it, he forgave all sin in order to truly put it aside. He put it aside by fulfilling the requirements of it, and because the requirements are now fulfilled, either obedience or death, and he died on our behalf, because those requirements are fulfilled, we can now move on and consider the new life that he has provided for us, a life of inheritance, a life of graciousness, a life of mercy, but a life of beginning to know our God, rather than us trying to become someone who we will never be. It's a different kind of accomplishment compared to what other people want to see accomplished. Most people want to see people begin to behave so that God won't reject them because they're so good. But there is something else to accomplish, and that is to acknowledge our condition, to acknowledge his provision, and to live in the new covenant that he has established by which we can begin to truly know him and have a relationship with him. So again, in verse This is Romans chapter 11, verse 5. It says, In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, when people are reading this, they will focus, or at least they will tend to focus, on this idea that God has a choice, that he is making a choice, that he is choosing to be gracious to some people, and he is choosing not to be gracious to other people. And in a sense, that is true. He is being gracious to those who are willing to receive his grace, who are willing to receive his mercy, who are willing to receive his forgiveness. And for those who do not want his forgiveness, who do not want to know who he is, he will not provide them with a place in his kingdom. He's not going to provide a place for those people who don't want to know him, who don't want to have a relationship with him. The emphasis is to be placed on his grace, on his graciousness, not on the choice that gets established because he discriminates between those who want him and those who don't. For example, in verse 6, it says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's always about grace. And I will continue in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net